Unless the Lord does something in my heart this week, this is, the, this is my final message together with you through the book of Exodus. I would like to take the last two weeks together and be reflective and praiseful um, for what the Lord has done in our time together. And I love the fact that the last message that we'll share together throughout this journey of Exodus is a beautiful marriage, the marriage of Yahweh. When I was working last semester through my master's degree at Liberty, I was forced to take, I didn't choose to take it, I was forced to take a class called Intercultural Communication. Like I felt like the, the name itself was too long to figure out what that, you know, what that course is all about. And it was basically a, a class that was to awaken students to the importance of understanding cultural context because it's it's regardless of what your occupation is or what location you're at, it's communication is vital for partnership. And as Christians, and we always want to be communicating for the sake of, of the gospel, and through a number of scenarios in this class, we saw how language, gestures, and, and behavior, they're all perceived differently by people based on their cultural or national context. For example, you may know this, you may not. I didn't know this until the class, but a thumbs up in America means, man, that's really good. But a thumbs up in some Middle Eastern countries is the equivalent in America to giving someone the middle finger. So you gotta be careful doing this. Giving an okay sign in North America in some European countries is actually a very crude and offensive gesture. It all depends on the cultural context. Meaning two people can look at the same activity and have different conclusions or understandings. There was one, one illustration that really stuck, stuck out with me was that there was an American company who was trying to gather a Chinese company for a partnership and so they brought them in for a week of meetings and it was all to end going out to a restaurant, a formal restaurant, for the two teams to come together in one last setting before the partnership was finalized the following morning and everybody went home. When the Chinese leader arrived at the restaurant, he was greeted by a junior executive of the American team and said, where do I sit? And he was told, sit anywhere you want. The next morning, the Chinese team left without even saying anything to the American company. The partnership did not happen. And through an investigation of time, what they came to find out was that that dinner at this formal restaurant that was very expensive for the American company to host was very offensive to the Chinese delegation, so much so that they chose not to partner with this team. You see, in, Japan, in China, hierarchy is very important. And the fact that the head of the Chinese delegation was not greeted by the head of the American delegation was offensive to the entire group. And the fact that the head of the Chinese delegation was told to sit wherever you want was an offense to their entire group because he should have been placed at the head of the table next to the American leader. And because of the way that they felt they were offensively treated, they left. 
You see, without understanding cultural context, two people can share the same space and the same experience and leave with completely different conclusions. This is so true about the Bible you're holding. If you don't understand the cultural context of the book that you're holding, then two people can look at the same passage and end with two different conclusions. I think we'll see that today. Because as we approach Exodus chapter 19, Exodus 19 is where the people approach Mount Sinai. And what our Western approach to do is to, well, to read the text and then to analyze it and then to look for personal application. To see what's going to happen if we do it that way is we're going to miss the bigger picture and our application is going to miss God's intention. Because what we're really going to read about today is a wedding between Yahweh the I am and his people. But the only way we're going to understand that is if we're willing to take a step into Jewish context. Because remember, that book you're holding was written by Jews to Jews in a Jewish context with a Jewish understanding. So if we fail to dismiss, so if we dismiss all of that, what's going to happen is we're going to fall short to fully understand what's in front of us. And so there's two reasons why I want to propose to you that what we're about to read, and it's going to take me just a moment to get there, but two reasons why I want to propose to you what we're about to read is actually a marriage. And the first are the echoes of the life of Moses. Moses is a man that was very representative of the entire nation. And I want to take you briefly, we're going to zip through this, but I want to take you briefly through the, 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 the events in Moses' life and parallel them with the life of Israel for just a moment. So let's talk about salvation. I'm not going to read all of the verses. I've only highlighted them. But in Exodus chapter 2, verse 17, Moses is coming from Egypt. He's running for his life and he comes upon some women at a watering hole who are being oppressed by some shepherds and Moses stood up and saved them. In the life of Israel, Yahweh is there at a watering hole where his people are about to be oppressed by those who they were escaping from and Yahweh saves them back to Moses after Moses saves these women from this oppression he stops and he begins to water their flock he provides for them and cares for their thirst in the progression of Israel after they are saved at the body of water they thirst for water and Yahweh provides water for his thirsty people Back to Moses' life, once he shares, once he saves them and, and gives them water to their flock, those girls run home and they tell Jethro, their father, they tell Jethro how Moses had delivered them. And if you were with us last week, in Exodus 18, when this man Jethro comes and Moses meets him, and he, Moses, testifies to Jethro of how Yahweh had delivered them. 
And then in Moses' life, we go back to after Jethro is told about how Moses had delivered him, he said, come, call him so we can sit down and eat bread together. And last week, again, if you were with us, we saw that when Jethro received the news of Yahweh, he became a follower of Yahweh, and Aaron and all the elders went to Jethro and said, let's sit and break bread. And then in the progression of Moses' own life, after sitting down to eat and break bread with Jethro, he marries the one whom he delivers. Which leaves us with this progression of Israel and what I would believe where Yahweh marries the one whom he has delivered. So we see this echo all through Moses' life, which doesn't that make your Bible so cool? We see this progression through Moses' life, but I also want to take you into just a little bit of the Jewish wedding culture. And this is strictly from a guy that teaches it. His name is Marty Solomon. And he has, he, none, nothing about what I'm about to say is anything I came up with. I just, I'm sharing with you what was shared with me. He's a Messianic Jew and it is really cool. But I want to give you a Jewish culture real quickly. A Jewish marriage was an arranged marriage. They didn't have a choice. I think TV and movies skew what that means in our minds. Likely it was two families who interacted with one another regularly and they saw qualities in one of the children that they thought would complement the other child and so they bring them together and they choose what they believe best for their child and for the future. When it became time to propose, the Jewish groom, who was probably a young man anywhere between 14 to 17 years old, this Jewish groom travels with his father to the home of the bride. It might be a long distance, it might be a short distance. When they arrive at the home, the father pulls a cup out and he hands it to his son, and then he takes a bottle of wine and he pours wine into the cup. The son, the, the groom, now stands before his bride and he presents his bride with a cup saying, this cup represents a new covenant that I would like to make with you. And I will not drink of this cup until we drink it together in my father's house. Does that not take us to the Last Supper? When Jesus holds a cup up to his disciples and he says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. And I won't drink of this until we are together in my father's kingdom. You understand when Jesus says that to his disciples, it's not just, hey guys, here's what I'm doing. He's talking about wedding, marriage, commitment, covenant between a husband and a bride. When that bride is presented with the cup, if she takes it and drinks it, she is saying yes to the proposal. Which should make you think the next time you take that cup of the Lord's Supper and you drink it, you are not just saying, oh, I want to remember the broken body of Jesus. You are saying, I am saying yes to the covenant that you are wanting to make with me. And what does Jesus say? You cannot be my disciple unless you are willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That means every time you take of that cup in the Lord's Supper, you are saying, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you take me and I will do whatever you say. It's a covenant. If she refuses the cup, which she could, 
But if she refuses the cup, she's not just refusing this man. She's refusing all of the plans that her family has prepared for her, saying, no, I know what is best for me. After the proposal is complete, the the groom and his father return to the father's house where he now is, he is, he is commissioned with adding on to his father's house, preparing a room for he and his bride to live in for at least one year after their marriage. So we have somebody who offered a covenant of marriage, leaving for a time to their father's house to make a room for he and his bride. Oh, man, we can't miss John 14 there. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus isn't just saying, I'm going to give you a spot in heaven. He's saying, I have proposed to you, and I am preparing the room where we will dwell together in our covenant of marriage. Hello. That's like an inspector gadget thing. Wow, holy smokes. The only thing is the groom has no idea how long it's going to take. You see, it's the father who knows this is the last time he has to invest in the life of his son before he goes out on his own. And so he will make sure his son is ready. This may require the father saying, build it on your own. I'm not going to help you at all. It may be the father coming alongside and say, let's do it together. What the groom is not aware of is when his father is going to say, okay, it's good. That's why in Mark 13, when Jesus says, only the Father knows the time of my return. Because the Father is not waiting. You got to understand this because this is what Christianity thinks so much. We think the world is getting so bad, Jesus must be coming back soon. The world's getting so bad. No! The Father's not waiting for the world to get so bad. The Father is waiting for the body of Christ to complete the work he has given to us. God's not waiting on the world to get worse. He's waiting on Christians to get to work. And when the body of Christ has completed the work that we are called to do, he will say, son, it's time. And when it's time, the entire family journeys to the woman's house, to the bride's house. And the town watcher is looking. And when he says, the groom is coming, the bride is whisked away. She is cleansed. She is given a ritual washing so she will be ready for the time when her groom comes to her and the two of them can consummate their marriage. As the groom's family comes, a large trumpet will sound a shofar saying, the groom has arrived. And when the groom's family comes and the ram's horn has been sounded, the party begins The bride and groom will gather together under a large canopy called a hoopah, and that hoopah represents the presence of God. And standing under the presence of God, the bride and the groom will give their vows to one another. See, the groom has prepared a covenant for his bride. And he reads this covenant to her, and he asks her to accept the terms or the conditions of their marriage. And these words are foundational to their relationship because the vows are how he expresses his character and his values to this woman who really doesn't know him very well. 
And once that ceremony is over underneath of the hoopah, the marriage is consummated by the bride and groom coming together where the virgin proves she has saved herself for her groom. Once that proof has had, the dowry or the price of the bride is paid. And following a lengthy wedding party, this new couple returns to that prepared place that the groom has built and they spend, they begin their one year of a honeymoon stage where the groom will not go to the fields and he will not go to war. He is to spend a one year time getting to know this woman to whom he is now going to spend the rest of his life with and they will learn about each other and how they can live together in love. Okay, so I know that took a long time to get through, but that is the Jewish wedding culture. Now, keep that in mind as we read Exodus chapter 19. We're going to begin halfway through verse number 3 in in my translation, the ESV. Exodus chapter 19. It says, While Moses went up to God, Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Let me pause here. That would be the plagues. You've seen my power. And how I bore you on eagles' wings, carried them on the wind. The wind of God is very important. Remember the breath. The breath of God that parts the water. The breath of God that covers the Egyptians. The very pillar of smoke, which is just air. This is how he is providing for his people. He says, I bore you on eagles' wings and carried them on the wind and brought you to myself. No, not here. Brought you to myself. What, doesn't Israel get a choice? Or is this an arranged marriage? And, and doesn't he take them to the promised land? No, he is bringing them to himself. It is all about the groom. This is not about a people going to a land. This is about a people going to a person, Yahweh himself. Look at verse five. Uh, Sorry, somehow I messed that up. I feel like like I'm on the wrong... Uh, All right, I'm gonna have to read verse five. It says this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Aaron, you used those words this morning. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Now, here's the question, and I'm sorry I don't have the the words up there for me, but we're still in verse number five, Trent, just so you know. What God is saying, what Yahweh is saying, It seems so crazy. Like, what he's saying is, you're going to be my treasured possession among all peoples. Like, wait a second, doesn't God love everybody? And what it seems to appear as if Yahweh is saying, I am choosing a specific group to love. That's interesting. We'll have to come back and revisit that in a moment. He says, for all the earth is mine, verse number six, if you're following along, says, and you shall be to me, get this, Verse 6, you shall be to me exactly what Aaron read this morning, having no idea what the sermon was about. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Oh, we also said this morning a royal priesthood. Royal priesthood, kingdom of priests. Same thing. And a holy nation. As Aaron said, a a nation that is set apart. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so Yahweh is saying, if you will keep my covenant, if you will keep the terms of the covenant, you will be my treasured possession and you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here's what we know. I'm just telling you this ahead of time. Israel's gonna fail. They're not going to do it, which is why the apostle Peter says in the New Testament, now the church is the kingdom of priests. The church are the people who are set apart for a specific reason. You see, Yahweh approached a man named Abraham all the way back in Genesis, and he made a proposal, follow me, and I'll make of you a great nation to bless the entire world. And, and Abraham says, I will follow. And they make a covenant in Genesis chapter 15 to be faithful to one another. But then it appears that the groom is gone for so long because for 400 years, this bride of Israel is languishing in Egypt and they're under slavery and they're oppressed and they want out. Where is the groom? He's preparing a land. He's preparing a place. But suddenly this man named Moses is walking in the wilderness one day and he comes across a bush that is on fire and as he approaches the bush, here's what he finds out. The good news, the gospel is proclaimed to Moses. I am Yahweh. That's the good news. I'm here. Your God who was and is and is to come is present and I have come for my bride and God goes to work. Yahweh defeats the other gods of Egypt who the bride of Israel could have turned to and he said, no, I won't have any other groom with my bride. He leads them out and now he says, if you will just listen, you will be my treasured possession, which are the Hebrew words a groom would use on the day of his wedding. My treasured possession. Let's go back to the text, verse 7. So Moses came and he called all the elders and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded. And all the people answered together and said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Proposal accepted. And Moses reported the words of the people to Yahweh. Verse 9. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you. He's coming. The groom's on his way. I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. People may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. <laughs> so he's saying the groom is on his way. Get the bride ready, have her washed so she could be ready when I arrive. I'm gonna skip down to verse number 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very large trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Oops, I'm so sorry. Ah, oh, man, I keep skipping stuff. My fault, verse 16. 
If you find, trying to, I don't know if I have it on there somewhere else. I am so sorry for messing that up. Verse 16 says this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. So they're standing right next to the foot of the mountain. So verse 18 tells us, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. So they're standing at the foot of the mountain while the presence of God hangs above it in a canopy. And they gather. And what happens next? Well, Yahweh gives the vows. We don't read them, but they're in Exodus 20. Most people in the world call them the Ten Commandments. But really, the Ten Commandments are far more than just ten rules to live by. That's what the world has dumbed them down to be. The Ten Commandments are marriage vows defining the character and the values of Yahweh and what he desires to be important to his bride. And we don't have time to go through this together, but Israel, if you keep reading through Exodus, Israel's going to spend one whole year at Mount Sinai, their honeymoon, as they learn to how to live with their groom. But are you aware of what happens in that first year at Mount Sinai with the people? At some point, they're found dancing around and worshiping a golden calf, committing both idolatry but also spiritual adultery. And this happens right after the wedding. Which means the, the, the view of these people dancing around the golden calf is the picture of a bride who has promised herself to a husband and while his back is turned from her, either during the wedding party or during their first year of marriage, she is unfaithful to him. What, what's the groom going to do? This is why Moses gets so so upset with the people that he throws the, the table of covenants to the ground because he's showing this is what you did to the covenant you made with Yahweh when you said we will do everything you say because then you heard the vows in Exodus 20 and look at what you're doing now. In fact, if you want to understand how much this is a bride and groom understanding, Moses will grind up that golden calf. He throws it in water and he makes the people drink it. And some of them die from drinking the water. And in numbers, Moses begins to give husbands a way to find out if their wives have been unfaithful to them. And he says, bring grain offering to the priest. The priest will burn the grain. He will drop the ashes in water. The woman will drink it. If she is innocent of the charge of adultery, nothing will happen to her. But if she is guilty, her bowels will swell as a curse comes upon her. Huh. And that's what happened to the Israelites who committed a spiritual adultery. And that should immediately take our mind to this cup 
a cup that Jesus was handed. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, his words were, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But you got to understand, Jesus knew that cup was the, God, the wrath of God against sin. And he was innocent. There should have been no fear for Jesus to take that cup and drink it because he was sinless and God's wrath against sin should have nothing on him. But he was not going to take that cup for himself. He was taking that cup for his bride. You and me. And we are very guilty of sin. And when Jesus said, this cup is going to cost me my relationship with you, Father, that's why he did not want to take it, but he did take it because he didn't want our sin to cost us our relationship with the Father. What a good, good God we have. Jesus took the curse of the cup so his bride would not have to suffer for her own sins. But see, Moses wasn't the groom. Moses threw the covenant down, but Moses wasn't the groom. Yahweh was the groom. How does Yahweh respond? Well, how should he respond when his bride commits adultery just shortly after they make their vows to one another? Shouldn't he walk away and find a faithful bride? But that's not what Yahweh does. He calls Moses back up to the mountain and he rewrites the covenant with his already unfaithful bride on two new tablets because he was faithful to his covenant even when his people were not faithful to theirs. That's why Romans chapter 8 verse number 1 means a whole lot to me. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There should be condemnation to everyone. But he took the cup. He drank it. And he said, you may not be faithful to me, but I will be faithful to you. And now, condemnation, if you are in Christ Jesus. So what do we do with this? Like what, is it, what is the takeaway? Think very simply. We understand that God's instructions are not our way into the family. They are, they are our way to live as a family. We have this idea that living a good life is how I earn my way to God. But that's not the point at all. It's not about living a good life to earn your way to God because Israel didn't earn the status of being God's bride because they kept his laws no the only reason israel received the ten commandments is because god said i'm choosing you to be my bride now here is how i want you to display your loyalty to the covenant because this is the kind of god husband i am which means in our lives our obedience to the law of god is actually a reflection of our love for God. You cannot, and Christians sometimes we think, you cannot look at the word of God and say it doesn't matter. It matters everything. 
Because this is where we see the character and the values of our God. It's why Jesus responded the way he did when someone said, so like, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, I could sum up the whole thing in two words. Love God and love your neighbor. And he doesn't talk about any actions because God is not after our actions. He's after our affections. He's after our heart. He's not just after our obedience. But here's the thing. Our obedience displays whether he has our affection or not. If I live a life that is contrary to the word that is in front of me, what it says is, I love me more than I love him. Because I already know what is important to him. See, Jesus came and he didn't come to make us good. Jesus didn't come and save us because we were good. No, no, no. It's not like we're good and then we go to Jesus. Jesus came and he saved us to make us good. And it's as we come to salvation, we recognize the worth of this king who saved us from all that we were. And then we seek to please him. And we find out how to please him by what he says. Which is, this is so crazy. Jesus, if anybody wanted to please the father, they had to know it was Jesus. And yet Jesus still made this statement. I do as the father has commanded me. I keep the commandments so that the world may know that I love the Father. Our actions are a witness of our affections. We don't keep the law to get to God. We keep the law because God came to us. Jesus obeyed his father so the world could witness his love and the amazing thing is we could complain all we want to about keeping all these laws but i'll be real honest the laws of god are not about us pleasing him while suffering ourselves most of the laws of god well i should say all of the laws of god come from a heart that says i love you more than anything and i've proven that by giving my son and so yes, 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 Jesus did fulfill the law to bring our salvation. No question. We don't fulfill the law to earn our salvation. Jesus did that for us, but we do obey the law to display our affection. And we have to remember this, that God's family is not to seek exclusion from others, but inclusion for others. Remember what Yahweh said, you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That word holy is set apart, a specific purpose. Israel was not a holy nation, meaning we can't go to the world. Oh, the world is so wicked and so vile. We've got to come away from the world. No, no, no. What he's saying is I'm placing you in the world so that everyone around you can see what you have and desire what you have. But Israel didn't live it out rightly. See, Israel wasn't about, Israel was more about you're not who, like us, rather than saying we love him and being a witness to those around us. He goes back to this word where Yahweh said, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. Man, that just does not sound like something God would say, that he's got this special possession among all peoples. But I want to ask you a question to think about the contrast of love. Do you think, let's put two people up. 
man who loved every woman he ever met. He didn't meet a woman that he met that he didn't hug, love, kiss, do anything and everything with every woman. He gave himself 100% fully to every woman he ever met who had a special relationship with him. Or, or, what about this one man who finds a woman and he says to this one woman, I, I will make a life with you and we will raise children and we will teach them what commitment means and what character means and through the ups and downs of our lives, we will remain committed and faithful only to one another. And throughout his entire life, he remains faithful to his wife until the day that he dies. And let me ask you, ladies, which man would you want for your husband? One who gives himself to everyone and you don't have a special relationship or one who says, I will choose you and we will have a very special relationship. And if God is calling himself the husband, what kind of a husband do we want him to be? A husband who flippantly ignores how everyone lives, dismisses their wrongs as if they never happened and refuses to bring justice to the world? Would you really feel loved by a God who didn't right your wrongs? Or do we want a God who is completely committed to the good of the bride that he loves? And he desires for her to live a life of righteousness and justice, but he loves his bride by sending a son, an innocent son, who will take all of the guilt of his bride and he puts it on his son and his son brings justice to the world by displaying his love to you by giving everything he had. Which kind of a God do you want? That's the kind of God I want, the kind of God that I want that sent his son to take my place. That son stood there and said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. That sounds very exclusive, but very costly. You see, Jesus is the son who said, I will go out to sinners so that sinners can become sons and daughters of God. Never rejecting anyone who turns to him for a relationship, but the whole purpose, church, we didn't gather together today because we have something special. It's not about us at all. We're gathered today because we worship someone special. We came here because of our king and we stand in awe and we sing and when one of us leaves, we, we pray for them. When one of us hurts, we gather around and we pray for them and this is the picture the outside world should see to say, I want to be a part of that family. As we follow the example of King Jesus, we don't just settle for a place in the kingdom, which is where many believers live. I've got my job. I've got my spot. No, no. We don't settle for a place. We seek a place for others in the kingdom. And then last, God's expectations of his bride always begin with a confirmation of himself. 
So if you haven't been with us through Exodus, this isn't going to be relevant to you, probably. But before God makes this statement to his people, time and time and time again, he uses the same words. And often after he's done making that statement, he uses the same words. And those three words in English are, I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh, therefore I will bring you out. I will bring you in. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. I will defeat your enemies and I will bring you unto myself. I am Yahweh. And before Yahweh gives the 10, what we would call the 10 commandments, before he speaks the instructions of how he desires his people to live, before Yahweh gives the expectations to his bride, he begins with three words in Exodus 20. What we would term the 10 commandments all begin with, I am Yahweh. And that tells us the Christian life begins and ends with who God is, not who we are. I am Yahweh, the one who brought you out of Egypt. I am Yahweh. I am the God of all gods. I am Yahweh. I have delivered you now, now that you know who I am and what I have done for you. Here is what I will ask the people who I have pledged myself to do, and that is pledge yourself to me. What's so cool is Jesus does the same thing in Matthew 28 as he's giving the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go make disciples. And he closes the Great Commission with one statement. Behold, I am with you always. I am. The was, the is, the is to come. I am enough. Now go live it. See, our groom wants us to live holy, but he knows we can't. Do you know what he does? He gives us the Holy Spirit before he asks us to live holy. He wants us to live clean lives. And so you know what we do at the beginning of our journey is we get the water and we get baptized in a physical sense to show what is taking place, that we have been buried and we have been resurrected. And then he gives us the word to wash ourselves regularly. He doesn't expect us to do it on our own. He cares for us. He wants us to make disciples. And so he gives us authority over even the gates of hell. which ultimately means we don't find our identity in what we do. We don't even find our identity in who we are. We find our identity in whose we are, which is why, ladies, when you get married, you take on a new name, a new identity. And when Yahweh approached Israel to say, I want to marry you, he was saying, I want you to take my name and I don't want you to do it in vain. Bear my name. I am Yahweh. Now you live as Yahweh's. I guess the question is, you living out your vows? Because I know the New Church 
is the bride of Christ. And what Yahweh did for Israel in the Old Testament, we see Jesus doing for the church in the New Testament, and both are pictures of marriage to say, will you commit yourself to me? So live out your love. Hey, church, live out your love through the law. Read it and obey it, not because you have to, because you love the one who wrote it because he saved you. And invite others into the family. Go seek someone to help and share with them why you're helping because my God, Yahweh, he loves me. Jesus loves me and this is what he did for me and therefore that's why I want to help you. Invite others into the family and rejoice. Just please take some time to simply rejoice in the promised presence of your king this week. Get somewhere where you can just tune everything out. And if you love to, if you love to sing, turn a, turn a song that's not going to excite you just emotionally, or that's not just going to excite you physically, but is going to move you emotionally in love towards your king. If we truly loved Jesus, I believe we would truly live like Jesus. So fall in love with your king all over again.